Hey, welcome back. I'm so happy you're here with us this week. You are in the antidote to the echo chamber. We are listening for real today and I'm Jennifer Brown. My guest is Angie K. Love. She is an author. She's an amazing human. She is gifted in so many ways. But let me tell you something. We connected just very recently. This is not someone I've known for years. She heard a podcast, this podcast, Mm -hmm. a number of years back, months back, excuse me. And she heard it when I was talking to Kim Stevens. You all may recall in fall, Kim Stevens and I had two episodes in a row. One was called The Therapy Session, sort of. Go back and listen to them if you haven't heard them. They were great. Mm -hmm. Angie heard it and loved it so much. She reached out. Loved it. I was so happy you did that. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I loved listening to both the conversations that you had with Kim Stevens. Kim is an old friend from way back when, and I was so happy to get to hear her and come across you through those episodes. So thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, we we had a great conversation last week that it's so funny. I said, why weren't we recording this conversation? Because we got on the right. phone and talked for well over an hour and could have gone on yeah. for four more hours solidly. Yes. It was so good. We were but, right in the flow. Oh, we were. And you know what? It's so cool. You, we were talking because you sent me a message. And I I actually have to tell you and remind you of what you wrote, because I was talking about the power of story in another podcast. And you said, Mm -hmm. um, sharing our stories and witnessing the stories of others can at times open up this energetic portal and bring about shifts more powerful than physical medicine. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh my gosh, how interesting, because you had a career Prior to dedicating your time to writing your first book, which is called Awakening Hearts, and we're going to talk about that, guys, today. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about love that is taboo. And um, we're going to talk about attachment styles. We're going to talk about the characters in Angie's books, but also just how those stemmed from a, a personal life of relationships and attachment styles. There's just so much. It's going to be rich. But I really want to go back to what you said about more powerful than even physical medicine, because you had a career as an acupuncturist for, what was it, a decade and a half, almost two decades? Yeah, 15 years. So will you just for a minute talk about the transition or maybe how closely they're related as someone who was working in acupuncture and with the body, and then you we're always a writer as you make it so clear on your mm-hmm. on your bio on your website that you've always been a ri- writer it's just now that you're a published author and there mm-hmm. one is not necessarily more supreme than the other writing is yeah. writing and it's beautiful but will you just share a little bit about that juxtaposition yeah absolutely um and interestingly i think they don't even need to be juxtaposed i think they can be interwoven um I have to say that in my 15 years of practicing acupuncture, my favorite part was actually getting into stories with my patients. And by stories, I mean their stories, the stories of their lives. And I really found that the deepest healing would happen when people would start to open up about their stories and talk about what's going on in their lives emotionally and spiritually. And that seemed to open a portal so that the physical healing could happen. And I really do think that the both, both of them work very well 
hand in hand. Um, I had some of my patients who sought me out who um, came for a healing more at the spiritual emotional level, but a lot of them who would come in that would have never looked for that, you know, like um, uh, typically men who didn't really talk about emotions a lot in their lives, but maybe they hurt the back or they had some kind of a physical injury and that would bring them in for acupuncture. And as they would see me regularly, we would start to talk about what's going on in their lives. And I was often surprised at how vulnerable they were willing to be. And it really opened up this portal of energy where every time I got these tingles and it just brought me so much joy once that portal opened um, and then a whole other level of healing could happen. So I definitely think that they're interwoven. Um, I've loved doing both the physical and the emotional spiritual part. And then this past year, um, something unexpected came up in my life where the universe kind of gave me a little push was like, okay, it's time for a change. Um, my whole life, I've always dreamed of being able to be a full-time writer and that never seemed quite possible. Um, and to be honest, I would have never allowed myself to take that leap if it wasn't for that nudge that I got. That's like, okay, it's time for the change. Um, so I did. And if I hadn't, my book would not be published at this time because I've been honestly working on it full time ever since then. And there's just no way that I could be where I am now um, while still doing another job full time. Um, so it's been a really cool transition for me. Um, it's been, you know, there, there are some things that I miss about the physicality of being with people um on a daily basis with the body work there was so much instant gratification people would come in they would feel better and they'd leave saying oh i feel i feel so good thank you so much writing is a much more solitary experience <laughs> and granted i've connected with amazing people but touching people's lives happens with delay and i may or may not ever hear from them how my writing has touched them so it's, it's a different experience um no less rewarding but just different but yeah. you've got to be rooted and kind of secure, though, in the fact that you trust the process and think to yourself, I know I'm putting this out in the world and I may not get the the direct feedback I was accustomed to getting in, let's say, uh, acupuncture, but mm -hmm. I trust the process and I just trust that I'm going to put this out into the world and it is going to go where it's meant to go. And mm -hmm. that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that tastes, I mean, some of us are definite uh I'm definitely one that I love feedback and I'm gratified mm -hmm. by validation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it is, it's a totally different thing, but how, how beautiful and how good. It's, yeah, it's a process yeah. and it's a practice and it's a daily practice for me because I receive feedback that's both good and critical, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I keep bringing myself back to, um, first of all, it's not about what other people think because their experience of reading the book will be their own very personal subjective experience. And second of all, I've been doing a lot of pondering of what, what is success? You know, mm -hmm. how do we define success? And mostly in our world, success is how much money do you make off of something, right? What's the financial mm -hmm. return? But what if we lived in a world where success was measured by Okay, my first thought was, how many hearts can we touch? But then I took it a step further to, can we, how deeply can we even touch one single heart, right? And if even one person read my book and their heart was deeply touched, 
that to me is success. Well, and it's so funny because people hear that and go, uh, you always hear that if one person is impacted, if one person is touched, but really that takes the pressure off. If you think about how it, when you build up such an expectation, this has to have this impact or this has to bring this direct result, then then it loses some of its joy. And so I want to talk about what you see for the book, like what is possible for Awakening Hearts for the people who read it? What do you see as possible for them? Give Would you give just a little bit of the premise of the book, maybe a little glimpse at the characters, let everyone know what it is we're talking about, what this book is about. Right. Um, because I read, you sent me the the book funnel and I read mm-hmm. a portion and I was drawn in just, oh my gosh, it is mm-hmm. going to be a page turner. There's no mm-hmm. question. Will you just share a little bit about what genre we're in and what you hope will be gained when mm-hmm. someone finishes reading it? Awesome. Well, first of all, I love to hear that you were drawn right in. That is, mm-hmm. of course, every writer's hope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is a love story between two women that takes place across two lifetimes. And it's essentially two stories told in parallel. One of them takes place in 1862 in Ohio on a farm. Um, there are two young women called Lizzie and Claudia. And then the other story is contemporary, takes place in California in 2014. Um, with Sage and Alex. And um, the premise, and this comes up in the book pretty quickly, so I'm not giving too much away here, but um, Sage pretty quickly has a past life regression where she sees a, a prior lifetime. Um, that is a lifetime in Ohio. Um, and so the idea is, can past lives, whether they are real or metaphorical, you know, as a story that lives within us, can they influence us in the present? Can they influence our relationships? And why is it that when we meet someone, we can feel this instant powerful sense of attraction or recognition or just this incredibly strong magnetic pull that we have to spend more time with that person, we have to get to know them. And that's what my characters feel in the book, specifically in the 2014 timeline, Sage is a massage therapist. Alex comes to her by chance because the massage therapist she was seeing otherwise isn't available. And they just instantly have a strong pull, but they meet in a professional setting. And so, you know, Sage is trying to hold off from engaging in a friendship, but can't quite resist. And so it takes off from there. So the true stories are, are told in parallel. Um, my hope is that readers can see themselves in either one or multiple of the characters. Um, and that's feedback that I have received. And that really makes me the happiest to receive when people see parts of themselves, recognize themselves. And um, one of my readers said um, she really liked how the emotion was portrayed that the characters go through that she says so many of us experience, but we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a way to allow the reader to maybe recognize, oh, yeah, that's something I felt and at some time in my life. And maybe I didn't know how to even give it a name or how to express it, but I relate to that. And then by relating to that, my hope is that it actually awakens something in their own heart, that it stirs something in them. Maybe this lodges something that's been dormant for a long time that can then also be brought up for, for healing. So that's my hope. 
what I love too is, and tell me, tell me your intent and thought behind this, but I feel like a, a lot of people would hear this and go, oh, well, this is about gay love. Okay, but really, is there any reason anyone can't find themselves in these characters, find those same feelings and emotions with love between two human beings? Why would that be any different? But do you get feedback like that, that people immediately either discount it or they think it couldn't apply to them when in actuality? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell me quite more. the opposite, actually. I've, I've had, um, uh, you know, people of all different orientations read the book. Um, yeah. I don't think I've yet received feedback from a gay man, but I've had straight women and straight men read it. Yeah. Um, and they very much could see themselves in the characters. Um, yeah. and, really, and you'll find that too, when you come closer to the end of the book, that it's about an attraction between souls and the gender really is secondary. Yes. Um, so that's kind of what it com- comes down to in the end. Yeah. So I, I don't think that you have to be a lesbian woman in order to relate to the story. You, you just have to be a human being. Um, yeah. I think those who have been in situations where they felt a strong love for someone and there were obstacles to being with that person will probably relate the most. Um, but equally, I've had some readers who've never even experienced that kind of love attraction yet, and it opens up something in them for what they long for, right? They yes. want that kind of attraction or that kind of deep connection with another person. Well, that that's exactly what I thought is, is like, okay, so I identify as straight. And just because I happen to identify straight, as I was reading it, that is exactly what I thought. Oh, mm-hmm. this is a this is what I crave. This is this is such a a beautiful picture and um, taste of what of a broader sense of love. I couldn't even. I, I, I'm I'm struggling even now to articulate it. But that's mm-hmm. the beauty of seeing something in this character development that you do and in these relationships is what I can't articulate just resonated with me as I was reading. And I Mm -hmm. thought that's so beautiful. I really don't want people to discount something because maybe from whatever their belief system or worldview that they struggle with, with that. I mean, that's just real. Mm -hmm. Some people do, but I just, um, I, I, I went, oh, this is, this is wonderful. And it was my first foray into mm-hmm. a lesbian fiction, right? I, I think that's what's called it for a genre, correct? Yeah. I don't want to use the that. wrong terms. I love yeah. that. And to be honest, I never thought of my book as something only for the lesbian readership, right? Um, which has presented a challenge when it comes to marketing, because I do see a wider audience being able to read it. But one thing that I've come to learn is that for marketing your book, it really helps to have a very specific niche. And my book is not quite so niche specific. So that's, that's been interesting. Yeah. Um, but I, I do hope that people from all kinds of demographics will be able to relate. Yeah. yeah. I was chatting with my friend, Julia Nicholson, um, a while back, and we were on this topic of love. And she said, um, she used a phrase like this, but she said, well, does a soul have a gender? Does a soul have an identity? Does a soul have an orientation? Mm-hmm. And so when you said this soul to soul attraction, yes, mm-hmm. it happens to be wrapped in these bodies that are 
identified or labeled as female, right? Or other. And I thought, oh, that to me was the truest sense of it is Mm -hmm. it is just a soul in love with another soul. So then, so part of what intrigued me so much and made me want to talk to you is this is all paradigm shifting for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. First of all, the idea that, um, just from, let's say, maybe the spiritual realm, the idea that we can possibly um, be present in different lives that, mm-hmm. that, and I don't even, I guess, from a metaphysical standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. That's new to me. Mm-hmm. So I love exploring that because I just know that I've been operating in a very small box. And frankly, uh, my background is mostly Christian underpinnings where that was all very taboo. Any of this would have been very taboo to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And um, that's no longer a box I I choose to stay in because Mm -hmm. I I adore human beings in whatever um, (laughs) shape, form, orientation they come in, or if they're from the 1800s and it's a soul I'm meant to know, bring it on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that idea of crossing bound our supposed boundaries of time. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so how, how did you tell me a little bit about how you developed your characters? I know you Mm -hmm. said some of it, um, some stems from relationships you've observed, relationships you've had, but mm-hmm. I always want to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, not everyone wants to delve into every aspect of their life, but I know you, there's some things you really are open to sharing. Mm-hmm. So would you share a little bit about that character development? And yeah, um, yeah I'd love well, to hear more because these are four intriguing characters, you all, and yeah. y'all have to check these out. Yeah. They're all four <laughs> intriguing and different. And yet there's this beautiful through line that I just, I love. So yeah, share more on that. Well, the seed for the story was planted when I had a past life regression years ago with a wonderful woman called Joyce Ann, who is no longer on this planet with us. Um, But she was a very dear, dear friend. And she actually inspired one of the characters in my book. Um, And I had a past life vision where I saw these two young women on the farm in Ohio. Um, I saw a a small piece of what the story turned into. I saw basically a scene and a little bit further of that life. Um, And at the time, I was in a relationship that brought a fair few challenges for me. And um, what I learned from that past life felt very relevant in terms of the parallels and in terms of explaining maybe why um, this woman and I had come together in this lifetime and what kinds of things there were to heal. Um, And that's, again, a theme in my book. What, um, you know, can souls come back together in another lifetime to heal old wounds from lifetime past? That's part of my book description, I think. Um, So I really delved into the past life at the time to find my own healing. Why was this so difficult? Why did it feel so impossible? Where, where did this come from? Why was the attraction so incredibly strong? And I couldn't just walk away from it. Um, and so I, I don't really remember exactly how that came about. But one day I, I decided I'm going to use this as a basis for my book. I'd always wanted to write a book. Um, I used to think it would be more autobiographical and maybe like um, personal growth oriented. Um, 
you know, self-help kind of book with some autobiographical aspects in it. Um, but then this novel kind of was born for me. And writing it, of course, was also very therapeutic for me, equally very challenging, because as I wrote the book, I experienced every single emotion that my characters experienced multiple, multiple times over with all the revisions that I did. Um, so I felt everything very deeply. Um, but that's, yeah, that's where it was born from, from my personal experience. And then as I sat and wrote, um, I didn't, I'm, so there's, there's two main types of ways to approach writing. And then there's the subcategories, but there's, you can be a, a plotter or a pantser, meaning either you plot everything out ahead of time, you have, uh, you know, your very detailed um, plan of what each character is going to do in each scene, what's going to happen then, when, and all of that. Or if you're a pantser lying by the seat of your pants, you just sit down and start to write and you let the characters come through you. And that's very much how it felt for me. I would sit down and I would kind of tap into, I would try to open myself up to guidance and allow those characters to come in and I would write the story. And it, most of the time it was as much of a surprise for me as it's going to be for the reader. Yeah. And many of them were really fun and pleasant surprises. You know, I'd be like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. That's um, cool. Yeah. So that was really fun. And then it wasn't until later in the revision process and working with an editor that it even occurred to me that I could intentionally steer the story differently. I was yeah. like, but no, the characters are telling me the story, you know. Um, so there was a little bit of adjustment after to work it so that it, you know, the book fits the structure that might be expected from readers, but mostly the, the characters told the story and I wrote it down. Okay, yeah. but then did that somehow set an intention into motion, let's say, where your writing and your characters then informed and molded and transformed and changed you, mm -hmm. how you loved, how you related? Mm -hmm. Did did so? Did your writing change you and how you showed up in relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, you know, every relationship is so different too. So it's hard to say because I'm not in that same relationship how it might affect that relationship, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely think that it's changed me at a, a fundamental level in many ways. Yeah. Well, and one of the other things that you address in this book that I think is really, really important is that um, the concept of love, community, and sadly, the choice many people are forced to make to choose I want to love this person or I want to love someone who happens to have the same um, physical sex or mm -hmm. assigned at birth than I did. And mm -hmm. therefore, I am now having to forsake a community, let's say, um, from, a, from a faith practice. Right, right. Because there are plenty of faith communities that do not support that. Mm -hmm. And so that is... Um, what the pain of having to choose i i love which and and forsake another love 
it, it seems so difficult and crazy and painful and wrong in my mind. Mm-hmm. But can you just talk a little bit more of that from your character's perspective or from your life perspective? Because just culturally, I want to talk about that more. I want to normalize talking about it because I want to see it shift and change to be completely truthful yeah. with you. Um, and, and I think your book and you showing this beautiful humanity in these people, I hope, um, creates, stirs just some incredible empathy and compassion and, uh, a little bit of a reckoning to go, oh my gosh, I have supported uh, that um, a, a world or a culture or laws that completely took away that person. What let's let's use an example of um, voting in the state of California, let's say, in recent years where gay marriage became legal. Mm-hmm. There was a time, and I'm very open about this, that I would have voted against that and said, no, that's mm-hmm, slippery mm-hmm. slope, blah, blah, blah. I, I said all of the things. Mm-hmm. That is not where I stand now. But it makes me sad to think because I didn't understand these human beings and their souls and their stories, because mm-hmm. that's what shifted me. That's the mm-hmm. power of story, Angie, yeah, right? Yeah. Getting to, to know, know someone, this, learning their story. Right. And I realized, no, that is not how I would vote. No, that is mm-hmm. not what I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Period. Because my my exposure then shifted and expanded my perspective. So that was a very long way of asking yeah. you to share your perspective on that. I just think it's so important. I'm I'm really glad you brought this up, and especially what you said in the beginning about the faith community and having to make a difficult choice to potentially walk away from whether it's your faith community or your family that may not support you or, you know, right. any other kind of community, because that is actually a huge part of my book. Uh, one of my characters um, in the present day, well, 2014 timeline, Alex, that is her major struggle. She grew up Christian. Um, she is very uh, devoted to her beliefs and to her church. Um, she did not have a strong emotional bond with her parents growing up and her church is where she found her support and one of the things we talked about on our phone call is a sense of belonging and we kind of dabbled into the whole Brené Brown um you know her her wisdom that she shares with the world um and i do believe that's one of the most challenging uh well one of the greatest challenges that people can face in having to make that decision potentially walking away from a community where they found their sense of belonging, right? And so in Alex's situation, she's faced with having to decide, do I commit myself to this woman that I love, that I feel the sense of being at home with, and she's so supportive to me in so many ways, but I don't know, I don't have any guarantees that love's going to last because, you know, I've been shown in life that you can't count on love and, um, you know, I I could lose her and then, what happens and I have nothing, right? How how would I survive that if I don't have my church community to fall back on and my faith that I've built my whole life foundation on? So a lot of the book is about her grappling with these very existential questions um, and being so conflicted about what to do. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, how does that translate into real life? I mean, we can never control how other people act, right? It would be wonderful if our communities and our families were just so supportive of us and loved us no matter what. In reality, I think that for a lot of people, it's still not like that, right? Even now in 2022, uh, crazy to think that we're even 2022 sounds so futuristic, but here we are. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Wait, did you have some more thoughts on that? I just want, um, I think it happens in any relationship. It could be gay. It could be straight. It could be, it could be someone who is non-binary and, and just trying to, um, who everyone deserves to just love and be loved and valued. Mm -hmm. And then if we are given the forced to choose our family or our mm -hmm. house of faith or our job. I mean, there's so many things. Mm -hmm. um, the Doesn't place we live. Be... I mean, there are countries in this world that would be intolerable still oh, yeah. in 2022, which is stunning. Mm -hmm. And and so I just appreciate the ability to talk and hopefully speak to how painful that must be for mm -hmm. someone to have to endure. Mm -hmm. You know what and I mean? In this case, it's sexuality, but it could be anything. It could be 100%. falling in love with someone of a different skin color or socioeconomic background or exactly. you know, any community that is different than yours. Um, you know, maybe you grew up Jewish and you fall in love with a Christian person and your family really thinks you need to marry a Jewish person. So exactly. It's, yeah, so many culturally. Yeah. yeah, you've got yeah, you, you, you there's just so many ways this pain can be experienced. Yeah. 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 And um that's that's important and and so again, I love that we can find ourselves in these characters. I mean, that's the beauty of mm -hmm. stories whether it's and I talk about this all the time that you know, humanity is an anthology. It's a collection of stories. Mm -hmm. And that when we listen deeply to another person's story or share a story, there's just a beautiful connection and shared language that happens. And so my hope is that by conversations like this, by reading books such as yours, that we can connect to those stories and just grow more deeply and grow closer as human beings while we're on mm -hmm. this planet together, you know, Absolutely. let's take a quick break and um, come back and delve into this some more. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. so happy you're here. Y'all, you know, I love that this is not just a conversation between Angie and I, but this is to me a conversation between all of us. I love the idea of this podcast sparking 
conversations, but also connect with us on Instagram. That's one other way too. You can get in touch with me. You can get in touch with Angie. Angie's at angie.k.love at Instagram. And my Instagram is beingrealjen. And you'll find every way to connect with us, including Angie's website and uh, more about her book, all of the ways to connect in the episode notes. So please, please connect with us because every time we talk on this podcast. My goal is to engage with you as well. This isn't just an indulgence for Angie and I, but it's about broadening the conversation and making and normalizing, I should say, conversations like this in a broader audience and in the culture. I like talking about things that maybe are normally not discussed or you don't really delve into, you just keep it very surfacey. I like to delve in because I just think that's such a beautiful way to connect and communicate with the people around us. And so, yeah, I do it in a public forum like this podcast because I want to see that mindset catch fire and that we may have a certain mindset or belief system or echo chamber where that's always neatly reinforced because we just surround ourselves with the people or institutions or information sources that reinforce our narrative. But I got weary of that and I want to expand it. And so that's what this podcast is about. And therefore, that's what I'm asking you all to join me in. And and if that means a question, a challenge, a concern, we're all big kids. We can do that. We can do that. Bring it here. on. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so, okay, Angie, we were you introduced me to an idea when we were talking on our phone call um, last week about attachment styles. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so fascinating. And I would love for you to talk about that here because I think this is game-changing for anybody who is human and wants to be attached to another human. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? We all want to be, have attachment and connection. Yeah. Will you just talk more about that concept and then how that show has shown up in your life, how mm-hmm. you've understood it or your characters' lives? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to mention where I started learning about all of this um, several years ago when I was going through a second challenging relationship in a row. I came across a podcast called Relationship Alive. Um, Neil Satin is the guy who creates that podcast. And in every episode, oh, some of them he did on his own and talked about different things regarding relationships. But most of the time, he would interview different relationship experts. Often those were people who had written a book, uh, maybe also offered different courses. And he started talking about the attachment styles and bringing on guests to delve into that deeper And it was just so eye-opening for me. It explained so much about where some of the challenges had come from in my current relationship at the time and the previous one, challenges that I'd never had in my first two long-term relationships. I was married for 11 years and then in a five-year relationship after that. And those issues never came up, but then later on they did. Um, And in fact, if you had asked me after my first two long-term relationships, I would have told you. I thought I was good at relationships. If I'd had those second relation, the the next following two relationships first, I would have said, oh my gosh, I suck at relationships. And so what I came to learn um, 
And one of the one of the people that was interviewed, I learned a lot from is Stan Tapkin, who's written a book called Wired for Love. Great, great book. I highly recommend that. And we can put some links in the show notes with some of those podcast interviews, maybe too. Yeah, I'll um, link them. Yeah. So what I learned is that we all develop a different attachment style based on our very early interactions with our primary caretakers when we're young. Um, and depending on how our primary caretaker, most often our mother, but it could be either of our parents, how they showed up for us, that will determine how we interact in relationships as adults. Um, and Stan Tapkin, one thing I really appreciate about him is that he makes sure to clarify that this is not a pathology. This is a cultural adaptation. This mm -hmm. is how we learn to cope in life and keep ourselves safe. And the goal is not to change our attachment style. The goal is to understand it and understand our partner's attachment style. So there are three major attachment styles. And then there's some subcategories that we won't go into right now. But um, you can either be securely attached or you can have an insecure attachment style. And the two types of the insecure attachment style that are most predominant are anxious and avoidant. And Stan Tapkin calls them um, islands and waves. The islands would be the avoidance and waves would be the anxious types. And we're all on a spectrum. So we can vacillate depending on the relationships we're in, depending on the stages of our life. Um, but essentially what I came to learn is that my first two partners were secure. And because they were secure, none of those issues were ever triggered that came up in later relationships with avoidant partners. And in being with avoidant partners, my tendency to be more on the anxious end of the spectrum then got triggered, which I was completely unaware of before because my previous partners didn't trigger that in me, you know, because they they showed up, they were available, they were emotionally present, all these things. Yeah. Um, but then I found myself with partners who um, had developed that avoidant attachment style. Those, those are people who pride themselves on their independence. Um they've learned to do very well for themselves usually in life they want connection as much as anybody else we all want connection but they have a fear of engulfment and um they always kind of need to retreat back into their own shell or um be alone so that they can process um they can easily get overloaded by too much together time whereas the anxious person or the wave will want more connection and will go towards their partner and will want a lot of communication and talk about emotions, which can be easily overwhelming for the island, right? If their partner is secure, the partner will be fine with it. They, you know, they'll just um, indulge them. But if their partner is an avoidant, then it can become this push-pull dance where the wave tries to move toward their partner and wants more of their time of attention and the, and the um, island moves away and wants more space and it can become very painful for everyone involved. You're literally describing so many relationships right now. It's fascinating right. to me. Yeah. And what I think is an important thing, a distinction to make is one is not better than the other. They just are. Correct. One would hear secure and insecure and immediately think that insecure is an inferior mm -hmm. position in the relationship. And mm -hmm. what I'm hearing is that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So then do you mind me asking what you are? So are you insecure? I 
So I'm trying to find myself too. Yeah. I'm more <laughs> on the anxious end of the spectrum. Okay. And when I've been with secure partners, I felt secure. You know, I would have said I was secure. I didn't know anything about that at the time yeah. because again, those things weren't triggered. And it wasn't until I was with avoidant partners Mm-hmm. that I became very aware of those anxious tendencies in me because when they would pull away, it was very painful for me. Yes. Um, so yeah, different that, environments can trigger it more than others. That is so, is is avoidant related to what we were talking about earlier or totally unrelated to that pain of competing loyalties? We were talking about if somebody has to choose between um a relationship with uh, someone they love, let's say, and their family, their um, uh, culture, their uh, house of faith, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's part of what makes someone avoidant? I think they're overlying complexities. I think they can be interwoven. Uh, I, I think they can all coexist. You can have that challenge with having to choose and you can be on either end of the spectrum yeah. in terms of anxious or avoidant. Yeah. Um, but one thing, I, so there was a guy, um, Dr. John Bowlby in the UK, I believe it was in the 70s. I read the 50s somewhere recently, so don't quote me on that. But he did research with very young children and their primary caretakers to observe their stress response when, in that case, the mother would leave the room. And if you don't mind, I can go into that briefly because I think it explains yeah. the pattern so well. Yeah. Um, so he had these young children in a room playing and he um, observed their outward signs of stress, but he also measured physiological signs of stress, such as heart rate, um, perspiration, dilation of pupils. Um, so for the children that um, were secure, what he observed is that when the mother would leave the room, they would show a little bit of upset, then they would go back to playing. And when the mother came back, um, they would acknowledge her and then they would go back to playing. So all in all, no big whoop, right? Because they knew ultimately they could count on their mother being there. With the anxious children, they would be very upset when the mother left. It would take them a while to calm down before they could go back to play. And then same thing when the mother came back, because in their minds, even though the person is back, they already anticipate that the person is going to leave them again. So already they're upset. Like, I know you're here now, but I know you're going to leave me again. And those are the children that have received intermittent attention from their from their mothers or primary caretakers, where they can sometimes count on them to respond to their needs, but not always. So there's always that concern, are you going to be there for me when I need you, right? Um, and then with the avoidant children, they would show no outward sign of distress, but they would just seem very ambivalent when the mother left and when she came back. But in terms of the physiological signs of stress, they did show heightened perspiration, heart rate, dilation of pupils. So they were stressed about it, but s- somehow they told themselves, uh, you know, subconsciously, of course, if I show any sign of upset, um, this will show weakness and I cannot be weak because that could be potentially life-threatening. So Mm -hmm. they will not show outer signs of weakness. Those are the people that grow up into the islands that pride themselves on their independence, that are often afraid to commit, you know, and to be tied down. Um, 
because to them on a very primal level, their survival depends on being able to be independent and care for themselves, right? Because they learned very early on that they needed to fend for themselves, for their own emotions, or in some households, maybe even for their own food or basic needs, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I just found that so fascinating how that shows how we then engage in relationships as adults and what gets triggered for us. I mean, there's so many things at play when you think of whether it's attachment uh, styles, whether it's your love languages, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, how you were raised, what you what was modeled. There's so many variables mm -hmm. at play. Uh, it, it, it's not just simple and organic and easy all the time. Boy, if it is awesome, <laughs> it, it's not what I've found um, no, so not. far in my 51 years. Mm -hmm. And I've been married twice. And so I haven't mastered this either. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, uh, oh, okay. It's a lifelong learning experience. And I think mm -hmm. the more we learn about ourselves, and what makes us tick and what triggers us and what our needs are, the better we can then show up in relationship. That mm -hmm. said, understanding all of this at an intellectual level is not going to suddenly make you great at relationship because what happens is when these things get triggered, we, we go into our primal brain, right? We're no mm -hmm. longer operating from the prefrontal cortex where we can make very rational decisions. Yep. So if your partner says something that triggers something that your mother or your father said when you were little, where you felt that your basic survival was yeah. at stake, then you're not going to be able to operate from that clear thinking part of your brain, right? Oh, that's right. 100%. But one thing I think um, we can practice is to recognize when that happens and to catch it and then um, utilize practices that can help us to ground back into ourselves and to come back down from that fight or flight response. And we might need to take a breather and we might need to step away, but then come back to repair. And, and that's something Stan Patkin talks a lot about, the importance of repair and in a secure relationship, secure functioning relationship. So he, he makes sure to say that even if you have an insecure attachment style, both you and your partner do, you can form a secure functioning bond by understanding how you both work. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's why, okay, so back to our real life stories and our character stories mm -hmm. and characters that you've created. I think all of this, as we were just talking for the last five minutes, it gets a little more heady and um, cerebral and there's a lot to figure out and hello audience i know because i do this too <laughs> we're all humans we kind of start to glaze over like wow that seems so complex that's so difficult mm -hmm. but here's what's so great about our stories about your characters when you can see something or identify something or resonate with something in another person in their lived experience in that character and how they feel and how they're reacting. You see yourself and you go, oh, hmm. and it's like a light bulb can go off and it's illuminating. So we may not understand Stan's work mm -hmm. necessarily, but it gives us a greater understanding for these principles to then go, Oh, oh, that's why I'm feeling I'm just like Alex. 
I'm just like Sage. I'm just like Claudia. You know what I mean? I am. I, I resonate so fiercely with that and that feeling. And then they can even go to someone they're in a relationship and, and say, and I've done this actually with my husband mm-hmm. and go, did you hear so-and-so on this podcast? Like for, for one of my favorite podcasts is We Can Do Hard Things. It's Glennon mm-hmm. Doyle, Abby Wambach, and Glennon's sister, Amanda. Yeah. And I adore this. And I adore how they all talk about their relationships. And so mm-hmm. many times I'll say to my husband, you've got to hear this and hear how mm-hmm. they talk about this subject and how they relate it. I go, I'm her or I'm mm-hmm. her. And, and he goes, oh, okay. Yeah. So I love that we can find ourselves in other people's stories. Absolutely. And in story, you can feel it in your body. You don't have to process it intellectually. Yeah. You'll just feel it. Yeah. You know, and my, my book has, um, it touches a little bit on some of those concepts, especially in the second book too. I bring up the attachment style and the um, love languages a little bit. But primarily the benefit in story, I mean, that's why we watch movies. That's why we read books, because we want to feel, right? And the sign of a good a good book or a good film is that you you feel strongly, whether you get angry because of something the character is doing or frustrated or you're you're crying, it means you're in your body and you're experiencing what they're going through at a visceral level. And we we seek that out. That's why the entertainment industry is so successful, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's showcasing, hopefully, the human experience, right? Mm-hmm. So I know you're in the midst of creating your audiobook right now. Mm-hmm. And book two is in the works, everybody. Yeah. So first of all, you can go get Awakening Hearts, which is her book that we've been discussing. But um, I love, I didn't realize that we did a little bit of a foreshadowing talking about the attachment styles and the love languages, et cetera. So do you want to give just a little sneak peek to, I know we can't hear everything because that would be a complete yeah. spoiler. <laughs> um, but what would you love to tell us about just the audiobook and book two that's coming? Yeah. Well, the audiobook I'm currently walking, uh, working with a voice narrator. She's a young woman in New York who's an actor and who's narrating the story. And it's been just so fun working with other creatives in this process. So at this stage, she's sending me chapters that she reads and then I go over them and we kind of do the the editing process. If there's anything that I say, well, this should sound a little bit different. Um, then I get back to her and she fixes that. And it's been so fun to hear the story that I wrote through somebody else's voice and interpretation. Oh, I can't even imagine. Oh my gosh. It's so cool. It's almost like I'm listening to something that's not what I wrote. Right. And I get to listen to it and I'm like, Oh, I love this. This And hear it anew. And hear Hear it anew. 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 She's got her own interpretation. You know, there's some things that she um, uses maybe a different intonation than than I might have saying this. And I'm like, oh, this is great how she says it, you know, and everyone who reads the book, of course, in their mind will hear the voices differently. Um, So that's been really fun. She's doing an amazing job because she is an actor. She's really bringing the characters alive with using different nuances in her tone and pacing. And it's been super fun. So the audiobook should come out hopefully late March or April. And I'm really excited to share that with the world. Yay. Yep. Um, And people have asked me, why do I not narrate my own audiobook? And I have thought about that. 
However, there are multiple reasons. One of them is I would need to rent a studio and have someone do all the editing. And, sure. you know, ultimately there's a cost. So I've decided I might as well pay somebody else to do it who's professional. Yeah. The other thing is my book does contain some intimate scenes. And um, I'm happy to have somebody else read them and uh, <laughs> yeah. not have people hear me read them. Actually, I, I think most of my readers have really enjoyed those scenes. It's something really vulnerable to put out into the world. Um, but I think for most of my readers, they're actually the best part of the book. So yeah. Well, I was part. reading some of your reviews and several of them referenced that. Like, these are good. <laughs> yeah, really good. Uh, yeah. And actually some... Uh, yeah, some straight men have commented on uh, how much they enjoyed those scenes. Um, <laughs> not in a weird way. Like these yeah. are awesome men. These are actually people I, I've met, uh, other authors. So um, yeah, and even some of the straight, some of my straight female readers have, yeah. they can feel the emotion in the scene. So again, exactly. I, I don't think you have to be a lesbian. And, and speaking of, I recently read a book from a fellow author I met who is he writes male male romance mm -hmm. and i've seen a lot of male male movies that i've loved some of my favorite movies are actually about two gay men but i had never read a gay male romance before so it was a new experience for me and i absolutely loved his story um this author's name is beck gray and his first book is called save me and um the the chemistry between the characters is just so palpable that to me the gender really is secondary and same thing if i read romance novels from other fellow authors who write straight romance you know i can still feel the chemistry i can still feel the excitement because it's well written you know the emotion is there and that's really what matters it's not so much about the technicalities of what's happening in the right. bedroom or in other places right um, but it's it's the chemistry that's there. So if that's yeah. well done, I think anyone can relate. Yeah. And Beck Gray is actually the one who inspired me to get my book narrated as an audiobook because he had his book narrated and sent me a link to listen. And it was just so delicious to listen to the narrator bring the characters alive in such a vibrant way. And I listened to that and I was like, Oh, I have to have my own. So I love it. Oh, I'm <laughs> I so found glad this you young did. gal, Helena Mueller, and she's amazing. And I can't wait to share my audiobook with the world. Oh, I I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. This is so, so good. It's been and so then fun. book two. When do you anticipate yeah. that? Book I know two, it's still in process. So do yeah. you anticipate when that'll come out? By summer of this year. I'm oh, hoping okay. early summer. It's what? a little bit soon for me to tell because I'm not quite sure how long it, the revisions will take. Yeah. And there are a lot of steps in the process. Um, next, I'm going to send it to my editor for um, developmental editing. So working on any potential changes in the storyline. And then I'll work on it again. I'll have some beta readers read it. Also give me feedback. And then I rework it. And then I send it back to my editor for copy editing making sure all the wording is smooth and there's yeah. no grammatical errors. And then I send it to a proofreader to make sure it's super smooth. Um, so all of that takes time. And um, hopefully hopefully by early summer, that's my projection at this point. And, uh, and the way book two came about actually was unexpected because book one originally had a different ending. And I attended a writer's boot camp last spring with um, Alessandra Torres. She has these awesome author conferences and boot camps she puts on. 
Um, and I really reworked some of the parts of my book that I hadn't intended on reworking. And when I got to the end of it, a different ending came to me. And from that ending, the second book was born because the ending left room for more between some of the main characters. And so in book two, um, more healing happens and more self-exploration. And there is, we do touch some more on the love languages and attachment styles, like I'd mentioned. Um, and then book two is actually a little bit different from book one in its format. Book one is written in third person past tense. Um, book two came through in first person present tense. My character, yeah. Alex, is the main voice in that book. She has a very vibrant, dynamic energy. And so she wanted to come through in first person present tense. Wow. It's been really fun to write it. It feels very alive. It's a, it's a different style. Um, and then while the first book does not fall into the romance category, it doesn't meet all the criteria. It's not a classical romance. The second book does. So it'll, it'll be a little bit different. But I think those who read the first book will love to learn what, what's happened with the characters after that and see some of them. Um, you know, we're always wanting the happy, yummy, feel-good feelings. And, yeah. um, you know, some of that coming through in, in the second book that I think most people yearn for. So, yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, mm. I'm oh. so happy. I'm so happy we had this conversation and that me you too. that you would reach out to me in the way that you did and that now we get to know each other and I'm so happy for you and I want you to have incredible success in your writing career and Thank I'm just so I, I hope we keep talking and because we're friends now. So we're we're gonna. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. This has oh. been so fun. I've loved yeah. speaking with you. And with your audience. It's been yeah. great. Yeah. Thank you. All right, y'all. I am so happy you were here. Listen deeply and keep speaking. It matters. And we'll see you next week. Listen for Real is produced in Rockland, California, and is edited and mixed with the help of Marky B. Our music, entitled Zero, is created and performed by the amazing Shannon Curtis. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and we will see you next time.